Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Streaming Science Podcast. Streaming Science is a student-driven program that works to connect you with scientists to learn how science impacts all of us in our everyday lives. I'm Jacob Ewert, a third-year plant science major at the University of Florida, and your host for this episode. You're currently listening to our most recent series titled The State of the Scientific Enterprise During COVID-19, made in partnership with the UF-IFAS Research Dean's Office and the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. In this series, we explore the stories of scientists and their students about how COVID-19 has impacted their professional and personal lives. Over the past year, scientists and their graduate students had to make tough decisions about how to modify research practices and how to reopen research spaces safely. In the following interview, I spoke with Dr. Savannah Berry, a regional specialized extension agent based in Cedar Key, Florida, at the UF-IFAS Nature Coast Biological Station. The station explores the issues facing our coastal regions, such as climate change and sea level rise, and how we can mitigate them. Dr. Barry interacts and connects with locals about sustainable fishing practices and local conservation efforts, including the Living Shorelines Project. Through this podcast, I hope you gain insight into Dr. Barry, COVID-19 impacts on her work, and an overall sense of how scientists are moving forward to keep the scientific enterprise up and running during a global pandemic. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the one, the only, Dr. Savannah Berry. All right, Dr. Savannah Barry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jacob. This is only my second time appearing on a podcast, so I'm really honored to be here. Um, but I am a regional specialized extension agent with Florida Sea Grant and UF IFAS Extension, and I'm based out in Cedar Key at the Nature Coast Biological Station. So for those of us who are not familiar with the Gulf Coast of Florida or the University of Florida, would you mind talking a little bit about where Cedar Key is located and how it's related to the University of Florida? Sure, yeah. So Cedar Key is about an hour west of Gainesville, where the main campus of University of Florida is, and it's really easy to find. You just get on Archer Road and you drive west until you literally cannot drive anymore without going into the Gulf. So um, we're about two hours north of Tampa on Florida's Gulf Coast. And Cedar Key is a really small fishing town. It's what some people refer to as a working waterfront community, or um, some people call it Old Florida. And it's there are no chain restaurants. You won't find any strip malls or anything like that in Cedar Key. It's a, it's a really small town of about 700 to 1,000 residents, and uh, a lot of folks depend on the water for their livelihoods. And uh, UF has several facilities based out there, but the main one is the, the Nature Coast Biological Station, which is a research center affiliated with the university. So why would you say the Nature Coast Biological Station is located on Cedar Key? Is it a great place to reach out to locals or is it important in the environmental world? Yeah, so the Nature Coast Biological Station was founded after a group of faculty got together and sort of performed a needs assessment by looking around the state and where University of Florida had research centers already and maybe looking for gaps in that. And what we found through that process was that there was a very long stretch of coastline where University of Florida had very little capacity, and this was also a stretch of coastline 
known as the nature coast, or some people call it the big bend, where a lot of people depend on natural resources for their livelihoods. And so that's why the research capacity that was built up out in Cedar Key, which is right in the middle of the nature coast, most people think of this as going from Tarpon Springs up to the St. Mark's River. And uh, the reason that this center is based on natural resources, whereas most of the university's satellite labs are based on agriculture research, is because of that connection to the economy and how important natural resources, especially coastal natural resources, are for folks um, who live in that region. Got it. Yeah, I think UF does a great job with being literally all over Florida and researching what is going on in that local economy. I did some work at the Research and Education Center in Fort Lauderdale, and it was all about right. the palm trees down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So how did you find yourself at NCBS? Um, well, it's it was a, a bit of a direct path, actually. I, <laughs> I came to the University of Florida for graduate school, and I did my master's and PhD in the fisheries and aquatic sciences department, and I was starting to look for jobs. I was graduating in spring of 2016, and the Nature Coast Biological Station was founded in 2015, and they were looking for an extension agent and a estuarine ecologist and a couple other positions that they announced with the formation of the lab. And I really, at that time, wasn't sure whether I was interested in extension or research, but uh, having read through the job descriptions, I actually wasn't that aware of what extension was going in, but the extension agent position ended up being the one that I applied for uh, right out of my PhD, and I actually started before I graduated my PhD. So... Um, found out about that opportunity early on and was fortunate enough to be selected for for that extension agent position. Wow, that's that's awesome. I didn't realize how young the station was. Yes, yeah, yeah. The actual station itself opened its doors in 2017. So even though it was founded in 2015, the actual building of the station took a couple years. So we were operating out of a, a temporary facility until our actual lab was built. So it's even younger. The physical lab is even younger. Wow. It's just incredible thinking about all that has been done at the station. If, since it's only that young, would you mind telling us a little bit about the projects you're involved with? Sure. Yeah. And, and you are right. We really hit the ground running. And I think part of that was because uh, both our director and me already had a lot of work and a lot of connections in the region. And then some of the folks we hired on had already been conducting research in the Gulf. And so we have three faculty at the at the lab other than our directors. We have a group that works on ecosystem modeling of fisheries and fisheries management questions, and that's led by Dr. Dave Shigaris. We have another lab that's focused on estuarine ecology, and that's led by Dr. Charlie Martin. And he has a group of folks that work a lot on questions having to do with seagrasses and habitat restoration and invasive species and how they interact with their environment, as well as a new set of projects that focuses on the range expansion of snook into more northern latitudes as related to climate change. So snook is a really popular sport fish. And uh, then, of course, our director, Mike Allen, he has a lot of projects focused on recreational fisheries and especially really important ones like spotted sea trout. He's had a lot of folks looking into how maybe changes in size limits and things like that can affect the fishery. But coming around to my program, which is the extension program, 
I have a, a lot of different angles that I work on, mostly things related to um, issues that emerge as needs in the Nature Coast. And so I'll just briefly run through a couple of them. Uh, we have a lot of boating visitors to the Nature Coast, especially around scallop season. So the bay scallop fishery is something that we we have only in the Nature Coast of Florida because other regions of Florida have lost their bay scallops. But we still have a lot, yeah, in our area. So um, I do a lot of outreach to boaters to try to help them understand how to protect seagrasses and also our scallop resources when they are out enjoying the water. So some boater outreach programs. We have a the main goal there is to protect seagrass habitats and and sustainable scalloping practices. And then I have a, a lot of programs focused on volunteer engagement and citizen science, so Florida Horseshoe Crab Watch. We do coastal cleanup every year, the international coastal cleanup. And I'm involved a lot with living shorelines, which has to do with uh, helping property owners along the coast enact sustainable shoreline management through habitat restoration. And there's a lot of opportunities for volunteers to be involved in those types of projects. So there are more, but those are really the main ones, I think, that, that emerge as themes year after year. Uh, we also have a, another program focused on fishing guides and, and recognizing fishing guides that enact sustainable practices called the Florida Friendly Fishing Guide Program. So those are some of the main ones that we work on. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. I wish we had enough time to go over every single project in such detail. So are the people who most benefit um, from these projects, you know, mostly the boaters or beachgoers, are they the ones that are most involved with these programs? Or is it like another group of people? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's an interesting question. Who benefits? I, I mean, I think anytime that our natural resources are protected or sustained, we really all benefit. I mean, there's a lot of folks in Florida that may live in the middle of the state that wonder why they should care about anything happening at the coast. When I think it really helps save taxpayer dollars when we're not constantly having to intervene to restore habitats. And if these habitats are protecting us and reducing damage from hurricanes and storms and things like that, you know, they really do contribute to a big amount to the economy. I mean, the fishing alone contributes, I think the estimate is around eight or nine billion dollars annually to Florida's economy. So even if they, if folks in the middle of the state don't think they're benefiting from the, the work that we are doing, they certainly are just through the overall economic output of these coastal areas. But I would say on a smaller level, individually, Certainly the homeowners are probably the primary beneficiary of the Living Shorelines approaches, except for the fact that volunteer volunteerism has a lot of really positive outcomes for folks that participate, uh, both in terms of mental health and also just on the ground experience that they can use uh, for whatever it might be for community service hours or things like that. So I, I'd say that the benefits are are very widespread. It may look on the face initially like uh, there's not that many people benefiting, but I actually think that, that the impacts are pretty large in terms of uh, who's benefiting. Yeah, it's, it's just so important remembering that your, your local ecosystem is part of the greater ecosystem 
and changes in your world can affect changes in someone else's and vice versa. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I just thought of another example for our, our horseshoe crab program. You know, COVID vaccines are completely dependent on testing through a, an extract that comes from horseshoe crab blood. And biomedical industries rely on healthy horseshoe crab populations in order to be able to produce enough of this test um, from this extract from horseshoe crabs. And so in, in Florida, our volunteers are helping our state managers understand the population numbers of horseshoe crabs so that they can keep a close eye on on the population trends and make sure that our horseshoe crab populations stay in good shape. So that's another example of how everybody benefits from coastal environments and in, in some way from the work that we're doing um, through something you probably never would think of, <laughs> COVID-19 vaccinations. Yeah, that is such a great reminder of how little we know about the natural world sometimes. So I wanted to transition to more of the theme of the podcast and the topic that has been on everyone's minds for the past year, uh, COVID-19. Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about how you've seen the pandemic affect your life and your career? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, about a year ago, it was just a rumbling on the news of this new, um, you know, SARS-like virus over in China. And in, in only one short month, we would be in lockdowns here in the U.S. And it it definitely caught us by surprise. There were, were certainly a couple weeks there at the beginning where everybody was just working on canceling everything that was in person and moving their offices to home and figuring out how to connect to, you know, internet. Because I have satellite internet out at my house, and so I had to get a hotspot. And, of course, they were back ordered, And so there was definitely an initial period of just adjusting to the work from home and to all of that. But then pretty soon after that, we started adapting to have a lot of extension programming online, doing things like online courses through Canvas or Facebook Live series, Zoom webinar series, that kind of thing. So we had a lot of statewide teams of agents that started to develop a lot of resources, whether that was just sort of our typical audiences that we normally engaged in, or if it was trying to help out folks that had kids stuck at home and nothing to do with them. And, you know, there were all kinds of different things that we tried to do. We worked on programs, for instance, to try to help people learn more about preparing seafood at home, because with uh, restaurants closing down, we wanted to try to encourage people to buy seafood directly and prepare it at home so that we didn't lose a lot of demand for our seafood industry. But a previous research had shown that people were not confident cooking seafood themselves. And so we had, that was just one example <laughs> of a, a, yeah, of a program we did. It was like a cooking show kind of, and wow. it was all through Facebook and it was free and accessible and the recordings were archived and things like that. So that was called seafood at your fingertips live. Um, but yeah, so we, we pretty much just transitioned to a virtual world and, and then slowly as we learned more about how to prevent transmission of the virus and things like that, we started to be able to develop safety protocols to still host some volunteer events that were outdoors and on a limited attendance basis and things like that. So we did still build some living shorelines and do some outdoor volunteering and things like that just to try to give folks an outlet. But our world definitely has looked a lot different in extension, but I think it's overall been a good change and it's introduced a lot of new technologies 
that I hope we see people use more even after the pandemic situation resolves. Yeah, when quarantine began, everyone was kind of in a frenzy. <laughs> no one really yeah. knew what that meant. Many of us have never, have we ever been in quarantine before in recent years? Yeah, I mean, no, I don't think so. I, I think there were a couple people quarantined from Ebola and that made national news and that was only like five people. So definitely <laughs> it was a uh, very foreign territory for a lot of us. But but really, I mean, the university supported us a lot by providing the tools and a lot of transparency and open information and, you know, weekly briefings from our leadership and things like that that helped us all get through it and uh, feel like we were on solid ground. Oh Yeah, it's great hearing that you guys have found ways to continue what you do. And I'll definitely have to look into seafood at your fingertips, because that sounds like such a hoot. And I love cooking seafood. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, so I remember when we talked, what was it a couple weeks ago, you were mentioning this higher demand for virtual education, and how you're almost competing for people's attention. Would you mind talking more about that again? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, along with all these new technologies we've seen, it's not like the university is the only group that's adopted these. So we have seen other organizations like aquariums and zoos and other universities and nonprofits and things like that have all jumped on the bandwagon and started, uh, you know, offering these virtual programs. And virtual field trips and things like that. And it's it's really overall a good thing, but it also does create a challenge when you're trying to make sure that you don't schedule your program at the same time as some really popular aquarium program. Or, you know, there is also a little bit of a fatigue that I think occurs with people. They don't really want to sit and look at a screen all day. And so offering people more screen time, you know, they're, it's a, uh, I think it started to wear on people over time. So we were competing a lot for eyeballs with other environmental organizations. And then, you know, just overall, there has been a bit of a, a loss of interest in it, uh, especially as kids have gone back to school and the, the schools have gotten more of a system with their virtual programming. There's really less of a need to fill those gaps. So, you know, I think there's always going to be a place for in-person classes. And then maybe once the onslaught of virtual programming subsides, as people start to return in person to aquariums and some of these other places, there probably will hopefully be a long-term sustained demand for virtual programming, but it's just really going to be hard to tell. So yeah, getting a slice of that pie is, was sometimes difficult. Yeah, it'd be really cool seeing some collaboration even between local groups and and just groups that reach a larger audience because they're larger. Sure, yeah, like the Clearwater Marine Aquarium did a lot of, they did like a daily live stream that was really cool. They would pretty much just show you behind the scenes of like feeding wow. the dolphins and and that kind of stuff. And just their daily tasks became of a huge interest to people. And I think that was a, a really good series that they did. So that was just one example of, of another program that was out there that got a lot of attention. And could you say you are desperate for quarantine to be over? Not saying that it will be, not saying that it's in the near future, but do you see it maybe just changing your field altogether once we get maybe another year in advance? I think that there definitely will be lasting changes from the the kind of shutdowns and the the increase in the virtual programming. I hope that some of it will help us cut down on some unnecessary travel. I think 
I traveled something like 20 to 30% of nights <laughs> before <laughs> this. And I do like to travel and I like to see other parts of our state, but certainly we don't have to go in person everywhere. And I think people have understood that the virtual option can really be a productive one for certain types of meetings. So I actually hope that some things from this lockdown or whatever you want to call it uh, persist in our professional lives. But certainly, like everybody else, I am ready for it to be over. I really miss going to conferences and networking with my colleagues. And um, I miss being able to take personal vacation and travel to places. You know, I had I was supposed to go to three different international locations in 2020, um, some for personal and some for work travel. And, and I, you know, really had built up a, to those experiences, saved up travel money and things like that. And, and of course, you know, like a lot of people um, had to lament the loss of that. But, you know, I, I, I think that we have reached a good pace and a good compromise with this situation i not i wouldn't say that i'm desperate for it to end i i think you know everybody is sick of it but i also just you know think we're in the home stretch and if we can all keep our heads down and stay safe for a couple more months then we'll really be in a lot better situation to get back to normal quote unquote yeah i find it making it's making me much more appreciative of the things that we used to have i was able to uh ask my advisor to meet in person because normally we do it over zoom and i was like it would make my day <laughs> if i could just talk to you in person and make eye contact <laughs> yeah that's understandable for sure so would you mind telling us about some other conservation projects that are ongoing along with stuff at the Nature Coast Biological Station. You had mentioned the Nature Coast Aquatic Preserve that was more recently constructed. Yeah, yeah, that's a really exciting development and something that's happened in spite of the pandemic is, you know, the a lot of people might not be aware, it might have gotten lost in the shuffle of 2020, but the, the DP just authorized a new aquatic preserve. It's the first new aquatic preserve to be declared in in more than 30 years. And it's called the Nature Coast Aquatic Preserve. And it's really exciting because it fills a big gap of the coastline that was not under any sort of state or federal protection. And it's from Citrus County down to Pasco County. So it's three counties. It's, uh, I don't know the acreage off the top of my head, but it's a lot of acres of marine habitat and coastal habitat that's now going to be managed and looked after by a staff of folks that will be monitoring water quality and seagrasses, among hopefully other things in the future. And I'm really excited to be part of this as the part of the leadership team and working with DEP on getting this new aquatic preserve up and running. And so we're in the early stages now, but hopefully by March we'll have our water quality sampling program underway and we've got our biologists starting this week and, and over the next couple of weeks we'll be getting getting everybody going on that. So if, if folks aren't familiar with the aquatic preserve system, they should definitely look into it online, but it's really a great system that we have in Florida to try to monitor and maintain our coastal resources in um, really as natural of a state as we possibly can. And if people are looking for more opportunity to get involved, even at the station, uh, what's the best way to go about that? Yeah, our website, the Nature Coast Biological Station website, if you just Google Nature Coast Biological Station, you'll find our our webpage and it details 
a lot of our extension programs, how to get involved in them, the volunteer opportunities. We often post those on our Facebook page as well. So people can check us out online. And if you want to volunteer with any of our programs, then you can come meet us in Cedar Key. We have some annual events like the International Coastal Cleanup that occurs every third Saturday in September so that you can mark your calendars and we could see you out there in Cedar Key for that. Um, we also have, you know, open house every year, normally in September, if people just want to come and check out what we're doing and see the facilities. So definitely the best way to, to find out about what we're doing is to subscribe to our newsletter through the website or follow us on Facebook. All right. Well, Dr. Savannah Berry, thank you so much for sharing about your life and your career. I think it made for a very engaging conservation, uh, con yeah, con conversation. Wow. <laughs> I say the word conservation too much and gave our listeners something to research on their own. Okay. Wonderful, Jacob. Well, people can find out more about me and my program online, and hopefully I'll hear from some of your listeners who want to get involved in our programs. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our State of the Scientific Enterprise during COVID-19 series on the Streaming Science Podcast. Make sure to follow and reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Buzzsprout. For more information about research at UF IFAS, visit the link in the show notes. We would love to conduct more of these interviews and grow this series to include a variety of scientist voices and perspectives. If you're interested in participating, please email us at streamingscience1 at gmail.com. That's streamingscience1 at gmail.com. I'm your host, Jacob Ewert. Thanks for listening.